Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. On April 10th, 1815, a volcano erupted in the central part of the Indonesian archipelago. Mount Tambura blew up, ejecting nearly 200 cubic kilometers of debris into the atmosphere. All that dust circled the earth, blocking out a significant amount of sunlight. Okay, yes, this is a music program, but let's stay with me. That blockage was so severe that the average temperature around the planet fell almost a full degree. And the result was that 1816 has gone down in history as the year without a summer. There were food shortages and famines and outbreaks of disease. And not only was it cold, but huge storms battered much of Europe. That summer, such as it was, four artsy types were holed up in a mansion called Villa Diodati near Geneva, Switzerland. To entertain themselves through these dark, cold, wet, rainy days, these people drank, had sex, and took opium. And they tried to outdo each other by coming up with the best horror story. One of them, John William Polidori, came up with The Vampire about undead bloodsuckers 80 years before Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. Meanwhile, 22-year-old Mary Shelley conjured up the idea of a mad scientist who created a new being by sewing together the parts of dead people, and she called her story Frankenstein. These two stories, imagined during the year without a summer, caused by the biggest volcanic eruption in 1,300 years, created the foundation of gothic fiction, a type of horror that endures today. Novels, movies, comic books, fashion styles, and yes, music. In fact, the music part of this equation has blown up to the point where goth music culture is one of the biggest musical subcultures the planet has ever seen. And while that explosion really began in the wake of the original punk era of the 1970s, we have to think back to April 10th, 1815 and Mount Tamburo. Anyway, this is the post-punk explosion part five. It's goth. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Joy Division and Dead Souls from the winter of 1979-1980. Welcome to the program. I'm Alan Cross. And on this exploration of our look at how music changed rapidly at the end of the 1970s and the early 80s, we're going to look at how goth rock came to be. Now, goth is a powerful subculture that includes music, fashion, art, lifestyle, and in some cases, both politics and religion. It's almost like Freemasonry in the way there are degrees of membership, ranging from the dabblers and the wannabes to the hardcore extremists who may actually be maybe evil. In between, though, is a wondrous world filled with dark things, romantic things, things that are supernatural, 
things very attached to the natural world, some very good things, and an amazing amount of music. With so many adherents worldwide, it's speculated that next to metal, this could be the biggest music-related subculture in the world. Goth was one of the many different byproducts that emerged in Britain in the late 1970s after punk rock burned out. There were some early American practitioners, but goth is very much a British invention, with one tiny exception. As far as we can tell, the first use of the word gothic to describe modern music was used in relation to The Doors' first album. You can understand why with songs like this. This is the end, my only friend, the end of our That was 1967. It was dark, it was mysterious, it was violent even. Around the same time, the Velvet Underground was doing something similarly sinister sounding. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather With flesh, girl, child in the dark Later, when Nico left the Velvets to go solo, she released a 1968 album called The Marble Index. It was stark, very dramatic. Plus, she adopted a completely black wardrobe to go along with some very bright red hair. And playing an old pump organ that you'd find in an ancient church? Awesome! Was this gothic? Absolutely. Here's a bit of a song called Frozen Warnings. The first goth album? Maybe. Friar hermit stumbles over The cloudy borderline Frozen warnings close to mine. And if we're talking about the rise of goth and its birth parents, we can't forget about the horror of Alice Cooper. People dug the dark vibe, but this wasn't goth. Not yet. For that, we have to wait another dozen years for punk to give us the keys. That's when a significant number of British punk refugees started making gloomy music of their own. One story says that they became known as goths because a bunch of them all lived in the same apartment building, a place called Visigoth Towers in the Brixton area of London. Or it might have been music journalist Nick Kent who started throwing the word about when describing these people. Whatever the case, These music fans began making music that was equal to the mood in England at the time. There was high unemployment, there were endless strikes, a recession, Margaret Thatcher, very unpopular, high unemployment, especially for young people. As the original punk scene lost its legs, it began shattering into many different pieces. The darker-minded punks slowly coalesced around artists who were already making dark music. This is where David Bowie turns up again, especially everything he released after 1976. Ultravox, who would later lighten up considerably, were quite gloomy in their first incarnation, releasing songs like Saturday Night in the City of the Dead and The Wild, the Beautiful, and the Damned. And then there was an Irish group called the Virgin Prunes, featuring a guitarist named Dick Evans. His baby brother Dave would later adopt the name The Edge and end up in a group called U2. The music that emerged was less aggressive than punk, usually. It was also very introspective and very artsy. There was an intellectual component to it all. 
including elements of existentialist philosophy, romanticism, art history, a little nihilism, and of course, trappings of horror in the macabre. Now, despite all this, Goth was never whiny. The introspection was cut with strength to endure, this idea of a need to persevere, to carry on. That needed to be highlighted and celebrated. Here's the direct connection to punk. When the Sex Pistols were on the Ascendant, they had a group of fans that followed them everywhere. They were called the Bromley Contingent. They went everywhere with the band, including to the famous Bill Grundy TV show in December 1976. Part of that crew was Susan Ballion. Inspired by the Pistols, she got into punk, forming a band called Flowers of Romance, which featured future Sex Pistols Sid Vicious on drums. Then she changed her name to Susie Sue, and together with bass player Steve Severin, formed Susie and the Banshees. Susie made for a striking figure. Black hair, lots of mascara and eyeshadow, big soulful eyes. And the name Banshees conjured up just the right amount of horror. She became an archetype for goths worldwide. This is from 1978. Susie and the Banshees, one of the first of the first-generation goth bands. Other like-minded groups started popping up. Johnny Lydon's Public Image Limited was pretty dark. Same thing with Killing Joke. And then Ian Curtis of Joy Division committed suicide. Now, they were dark already, but when their doomed lead singer killed himself, that just added fuel to the fire. And some remember that Dave Vanian of the punk band The Damned sometimes claimed to be a vampire, which was kind of interesting. When a new group called Bauhaus came along with this song in 1979, a song about the world's most famous vampire actor, things began to coalesce into an actual scene with a distinct dogma and ideology and look. This is from late in the summer of 1979. Bella Lugosi's Dead, the first ever single from Bauhaus. And that pretty much put everything in place for the new goth sound. Vampires, death, the undead, bats, bell towers. And of course, Bella Lugosi, the actor famous for playing Dracula in the movies. It ticked all the boxes. So you want to call that the first goth record? Okay, by all means. When we come back, more on the burgeoning goth scene and the groups that made it possible. This is part five of our look at all the music that came out of the original punk rock explosion of the 1970s, what's become known as the post-punk era. And this time we're looking at the rise of goth music. We need to detour a little bit into fashion for a bit. One thing about the British punks was that they understood the need for a proper look. Many punks sought to provoke and shock, which is why you saw some of them wear swastika armbands. They weren't Nazis, far from it. They just wanted to get a rise out of people. Goth developed a look that was at the same time more understated, yet also a little menacing, or at least disconcerting to non-believers. This insistence on wearing black everything became part of the glue that held the new scene together. And beyond the color, or lack thereof really, there was this tendency to wear styles that harkened back to what the British artsy class wore in the 1800s. So in other words, antiquated fashion styles that would have not been unfamiliar to Mary Shelley 150 years earlier as she sat in that dank house imagining her Frankenstein story. 
Some adopted looks that were quite androgynous. Others preferred something a little more BDSM. We can use adjectives like erotic, mysterious, and dressed for a never-ending funeral. And again, everything was black, black, black. The only color exceptions to the rules seem to be some shades of purple and bright red, especially for lipstick. At the beginning, to be called goth was an insult. But by the summer of 1982, the scene reclaimed that word as their own. And they found a headquarters, which was very important because all new scenes need a center if they're going to hold. In July 1982, a new club opened in the Soho district of London. It was called the Bat Cave, and it was founded by members of a group called Specimen. They were very theatrical, almost performance art-like. For example, their first single wasn't released on record or cassette. They issued it on video, a seriously radical thing to do for 1982. Specimen's club had black walls and was decorated with leather and lace and other design cues from black and white horror films from the 30s and 40s. There was an unofficial dress code, and there was a hard and fast music policy. Nothing funky, nothing poppy. The focus was on reinvention of glam-era David Bowie from 10 years earlier, think Ziggy Stardust, and to cross it with Tim Curry's Dr. Frankenfurter from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That means there was also a sex vibe to everything. Straight, gay, and everything in between. No judgment whatsoever. The Batcave became so popular that it had to franchise. They staged Batcave nights at other clubs around the UK, all with the same look and feel and sound. They even made it to New York, where they had a residence at a place called the Danceteria. The Batcave people did a lot, probably more than anyone, to spread the gospel of goth in those early days. And again, at the heart of it all, was Specimen. This is what they sounded like. Specimen and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and founders at the legendary and highly influential Batcave Club in West End London, ground zero for goth proper. The term goth stuck a little harder after Ian Asbury, who would later front the cult, called the followers of a group called Sex Gang Children Gothic Goblins. Here's a song that was on heavy rotation from the DJ booth during those Batcave nights. Nick Cave was an Australian singer with a band called The Bad Seeds. He'd released this song a couple of years earlier. And like Bauhaus and Bella Lugosi's Dead, it probably doesn't get much more goth than this. Goth's big break came in early 1983. People were getting a little weary of the happy, bouncy, lightweight technopop that had been everywhere for the past couple of years. The British music media, always ready to poke things with a stick, declared Technopop to be boring and therefore dead. The new sound was goth, or so the media said. And because the British music media was so powerful and influential back then, the charts immediately began to fill with songs featuring people dressed in black and wearing mascara and deathly white makeup and big teased black hair, often carefully crimped, they wore dog collars and lace and leather and velvet and fishnet stockings and ruffled shirts and stilettos or Doc Martens and painted nails, often black. It was as much artistic expression as it was fashion. By 1984, there were goth bands all over England. 
The music papers started calling some of these groups positive punks in a completely non-ironic way. The message was that these groups weren't really calling for any kind of revolution. It was art that provoked introspection and examination. And the period from 1983 to 1984 was huge for new bands. The Cure, who had been around since 1976, had established themselves at the forefront of British goth culture, although they sometimes disavowed being goths and were sometimes ostracized for being too pop. But I'm sorry, The Cure is definitely part of the whole goth story. Susie and the Banshees just kept getting bigger, and Susie's fashion choices became more popular. There was Jean Loves Jezebel, Flesh for Lulu, Theater of Hate, The March Violets, Alien Sex Fiend, The Dance Society, Ian Asbury's band, Southern Death Cult. There was also UK Decay and a ton of others. And the music began to evolve too. In the beginning, there was almost a goth sound. Tribal drums, bass players working high on the fretboard, sometimes carrying the melody, which, of course, was just not done in proper circles. Guitar sounds that were sharp and slashing and thin. The singing could be everything from a growl to a yelp to operatic. Put it all together, and the effect was mesmerizing. And one of the most important bands in this mix was the Sisters of Mercy. They were formed in Leeds in 1980 during the earliest days of goth. And here's where we can give a nod to Leonard Cohen for his contributions to goth. First, there's the darkness of some of his material, which found favor with some goths, much like we saw with Nico. And then there's his song, Sisters of Mercy, from which the band took their name. Out front was Andrew Eldridge, with his deep, baritone voice of doom. Somewhere at the back was drummer Dr. Avalanche, a drum machine that got its name because it kept, well, crashing. Those are really the only members you need to know because there were close to 20 ex-members of the Sisters of Mercy. Actually, there's also a bunch of ex-Dr. Avalanches, too, kind of like there were a succession of dogs that played Lassie. There was a Boss TR-55, followed by a Roland TR-606. There was a Roland TR-808 and a few others. And today, the Doctor is a special custom MacBook that was partly designed by the British military. I did not make that up. What the sisters brought to the party was a way to make all this doom and gloom rock in an interesting way. That was most evident in the late 1980s when they teamed up with songwriter Jim Steinman, the guy behind Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. Yes, uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Life, that's, that's him. And Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. So how is that for musical cross-pollination? But in the early days, the sisters were known for their covers. Stooges, Bob Dylan, Hot Chocolate, a funk band. Velvet Underground, and a killer version of Louie Louie. And then there was this 12-inch release of the Rolling Stones classic. The Sisters of Mercy, turning the Rolling Stones into something just for goth fans. A few more notes on the rise of goth in just a sec. Goth saw things expand worldwide in the early 1980s. The two biggest American acts at the time were probably Christian Death and 45 Grave, both from Southern California, and both a little harder and a little more punk rock influenced. The same with The Cramps from New York City. Then came Type O Negative out of Brooklyn. Clan of Zymox emerged out of the Netherlands. A serious goth scene developed in Florida, one that would later give us Marilyn Manson, and a pre-smashing pumpkins group with Billy Corgan called The Marked. 
Alan Jorgensen pivoted his band Ministry from being a light technopop band to something very gothic, releasing Every Day is Halloween, a goth anthem. But goth's spiritual center continued to be in the UK. There was The Mission, featuring ex-Sisters of Mercy dude Wayne Hussey, and they went on to make some great records, a few produced by Led Zeppelin-based player John Paul Jones. And here are more names from the era that you might want to investigate. Fields of the Nephilim, nice biblical reference there. Bollum and the Angel, another one. Miranda Sex Garden. And The Cure remains a torchbearer for goth, regardless if Robert Smith likes that label or not. And then there's this band. First, they were Southern Death Cult. Then they became just Death Cult. And by 1985, they were just The Cult. And they were releasing songs like this. By the mid-80s, goth's influence was spilling over into other genres. The new industrial bands at the time definitely had gothic trappings. I mean, just look at Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails at the end of the decade. Some electronic groups were hard to distinguish from pure goth acts. Even some metal acts, think Danzig, were starting to look pretty gothic. The influence only became stronger to the point where something goth is always in the background, somewhere, never going away and occasionally rising up with new generations of bands with a darker perspective on life. And it's infiltrated so many other art forms. Film, for example. Would there be a Tim Burton, if not for the goth scene? Nope. And think how much mainstream fashion has been influenced by the gothic look. Would Batman exist in its current form without goth? Nope. The scene is so complex that it's invited intense sociological study. What makes goths tick? There are books and theses on the subject. Goth has proven to be one of the most resilient and long-lasting of the alt-rock subgenres that emerged from the post-punk era. Maybe it is truly an undead subculture. If that's the case, it's immortal. Goth will be with us in some form forever. Let's review our study of all the major subgenres that came out of the post-punk era in the late 70s and early 80s. We began with New Wave, which was followed quickly by Technopop. From that, budded industrial music and a form of alternative dance. And we just finished up with goth. On the sixth part of this series, we're going to acknowledge the rise of ska. If you missed any of the episodes in this series, they're available as podcasts through every podcast platform in the known universe. That's in addition to hundreds of other episodes, all free, all binge ready. We can also discuss things further via email. You can reach me anytime at alan and alancross.ca. There's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated all the time with music news, analysis, and recommendations. Plus, there's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for more. Follow along, won't you? See you next time for part six of the post-punk explosion. And again, it's all about ska. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Architects with me here. 
Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come-ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, 2 Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande, uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's, it's, it's been a crazy journey. And, um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario that, uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So, uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creator, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moments. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art 
of Pharaoh is the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? <laughs> what kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like, Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Architects with Karina Evans, Taj Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.